Welcome back to the Why We Fight 1943 podcast. I'm your host, Sasha, sometimes also known as Mother of Tanks. And if you're new, this podcast accompanies a year-long series with other content on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. You can also find behind-the-scenes content on TikTok. My guest today is Mr. Paul Sparrow. Paul was a very successful documentary and television producer before moving into the museum field, where, among other things, he has served as the director of the FDR Library and Museum. Paul, I'd like to welcome you and thank you for taking the time to join me today. Thank you. I can't wait to have this conversation. So you wrote a really beautiful article telling about President Roosevelt's secret trip to Morocco 80 years ago. And I was hoping that you'd share that story and maybe some of your expertise here for the podcast, which accompanies this year's Why We Fight 1943 series. I'd love to. And, and you know, the relationship between Churchill and Roosevelt, which led to the Casablanca Conference, um, is really fascinating and goes so much to why they were successful uh, in, in the way they executed World War II. Uh, and the story really starts uh, much earlier. You know, so obviously after Pearl Harbor, Winston Churchill comes to Washington and spends Christmas at the White House, and they have the first of the big uh, joint conferences. Um, and even then, in in you know January of 1942, he's talking. Churchill's talking about how important it is to invade North Africa. And of course, yeah. the Americans and particularly the American military leaders are like, no, 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 no. We have to go. We have to attack Germany. We have to go to Europe. <laughs> Uh, and the British are like, you guys are not ready to take on the Germans. And so then in the summer, there's a big conference in Washington again in June of 1942. And while Churchill is in the White House with FDR, uh, General Erwin Rommel takes Tobruk. It, it's, it's this huge defeat. You know, 35,000 British troops surrender um, to a smaller German force. And Churchill is sort of devastated. Uh, and Roosevelt asks him, is, is there anything I can do? You know, what can we do? And Churchill basically says, send me all the tanks you can. Uh, and Roosevelt overrules his uh, generals and they send all these tanks to North Africa uh, for the British army, which actually ends up uh, allowing them to defend uh, Jerusalem and Palestine because the, the Germans had planned to, t to conquer Palestine and then kill all the Jews. Um, so it was a very important um, decision that Roosevelt made and the first of a series of decisions in which he sort of overrules his military advisors. Uh, and this, of course, is also the meeting where this debate takes place about what should their top priority be. Um, and in this case, again, the American generals are saying we should you know, prepare to attack mainland Europe. And some of the advisors, particularly Admiral King, are saying, no, let's put our resources in the Pacific and go after Japan because the American military leaders and the British military leaders really didn't like each other very much and completely disagreed about yeah. military strategy. But FDR was smart enough to understand that, no, you know, Churchill's right. You know, we, we really aren't prepared. We don't have the equipment. We don't have the landing gear. We don't have the Air Force. We don't have the soldiers. We're green. You know, North Africa gives us a better chance for success and we can do it sooner. He knew that they had to do something after Pearl Harbor. It had been a whole year almost by the time they actually uh, launched Torch. Um, and so in November, obviously, 
They launch Torch, they land. It's a very compl complicated political situation. You've got the French who hate the British and the French, you know, they hate the Germans too, but they're, you know, here's an invasion. So they start fighting the Americans and then they stop fighting the Americans. And then you've got two different French factions, you know, that hate each other more than they hate the Germans. Um, so it's a really complicated political situation. Um, and uh, Churchill and Roosevelt decide that, you know, let's have a conference in Casablanca. Um, and this is something that is very dangerous, obviously. Casablanca was within range of German bombers. Um, they had to execute extreme secrecy uh, to pull this off. Um, and they start this planning process. Uh, so in end of December, early January, they start working out the details for this. And a short side point, one of my favorite uh, stories about this is that Churchill sends uh, a secret message to FDR, and these are all in the uh, what they call the map room files at the FDR library, in which uh, Churchill says that we have to keep this secret. We should send out a false notice that I've come to the United States for secret meetings, um, and I will be traveling under the code name Commodore <laughs> Franklin, uh, and that you should come up with a code name for you and for your advisor, Harry Hopkins. Um, and uh, Roosevelt responds immediately the same day. This is like January 1st. He says, that's a brilliant idea. Uh, I'll be traveling under the code name um, Pancho and Hopkins will be traveling under the code name <laughs> Sanchez. So <laughs> Pancho Sanchez, right? Um, and Churchill writes back immediately saying, oh, that's a brilliant idea because uh, we need uh, to mind our P's and Q's. So here they are in the middle of the war, all this crazy stuff, and they're joking about their secret code names. Um, for this very, very critically important military conference, but it goes to their personalities and the fact that they were more than just sort of the leaders of two separate countries. Uh, they really were friends in many ways. So now you asked about the the the, yeah. the journey uh, and, and how FDR got to this conference. Um, and one of the things that's quite amusing about Churchill and FDR is that they had these very contentious relationships with the press. Um, and of course, secrecy uh, allowed Franklin Roosevelt to do a lot of things during the war that he couldn't have done previously. So he loved to trick um, the press. You know, he had tricked the press when he and Churchill had met in the Atlantic Conference in that uh, August of that year. So he tells the press, well, we're going up to Hyde Park for a little while. And he gets on a train, starts heading north, and then turns around and heads south secretly, gets to Miami, gets on a plane, uh, and flies to Trinidad and then to Brazil and then across the South Atlantic to Gambia, Africa, and then up the coast of Africa to get to Casablanca. Uh, you, generally, Roosevelt liked to travel by naval ship, particularly liked to travel on battleships and heavy cruisers. But the Atlantic was so dangerous at this point because of the German submarines that this would be the first time any president had ever flown on a plane first time a president had left the country during a time of war, the first time a president had visited a war zone since Lincoln in the Civil War. Um, and they did it all without the press ever finding out. It's also the first time a president visited Africa, right? Correct. Yeah. It's, it's so many firsts all in one trip. <laughs> and it was incredibly dangerous. They were flying these, uh, you know, the uh, Pan America um, Clipper flights, they were called, these sort of 
they were seaplanes. Yeah. Uh, they were extremely unaerodynamic. Um, they, it was a 19 hour flight from Brazil to Africa across the Atlantic ocean. There were two planes flying together. So theoretically, if one of them crashed, the other one could rescue the survivors, but, um, you're talking about incredibly dangerous. And of course, FDR was, was, uh, ill. Right. You know, he had, he had, uh, problems with his heart and with his blood pressure. And so they, these are unpressurized <laughs> planes and the weather was so bad that they were only flying a few thousand feet above the surface of the ocean. So it was a rough, bumpy 19 hour flight. Um, they finally land in Africa and eventually make their way up to Casablanca. So though this is, um, such an unprecedented experience. Um, and yet Roosevelt loved it. You know, he loved these kinds of adventures. Uh, when he could get out from under the spotlight of Washington, you know, the fishbowl of, of the White House. Um, and of course, well, he had already been president for a long time, too. Correct. Um, and, uh, you know, again, he was he was not in great health at this point. Um, and, of course, Churchill, you know, tra who traveled quite a yeah. bit more, didn't have the mobility issues. Remember, Roosevelt is doing all this in a wheelchair, right? He has to have constant physical support to do even the most basic activities. Um, so they, when they finally arrive in Casablanca, um, they take over this resort um, and you've got, you know, the president and Churchill and um, all of their military leaders uh, who are coming into this, you know, with very different sort of expectations. You know, the, the British have been in the war for three years now um, and are, you know, much more experienced and have much more, respect for the German military machine and the Americans who are sort of typically um, confident and maybe a little arrogant and we're going to do it our way and we don't trust the British and we're not fighting you know, to save the British Empire. So there's, you know, there's certainly some undercurrents of tension. We had to, um, it, we all had different, uh, different ideas of how things should be done and different ideas what the eventual outcome should be. Well, and even the basic stuff about strategy and what kind of tanks to use, what kind of military. And again, the British officers and the British soldiers had been fighting for a while. They they were pretty hardened. And the American soldiers were as green as green could be. Um, and their equipment was inferior, to be perfectly honest. Um, certainly the German equipment was, was superior, although it had been um, suffering from... Uh, degradation because it had been in the desert for a long time. Deserts take a terrible toll uh, on, on military hardware. Um, they do. Plus they were having supply issues around up to this point, the last year or so. They had, had a lot of supply issues. Rommel was a brilliant um, tactician and a great leader um, and had done really sort of remarkable things with the forces that he had. Um, the original uh, British general had been replaced by Montgomery and Montgomery was certainly more um, aggressive uh, and more effective. And of course, this influx of American military equipment, uh, particularly the tanks, but also the planes and the support trucks and gasoline and all those sorts of elements. And they're now squeezing Rommel, you know, as Montgomery and his team are moving in uh, from Egypt and they're moving west and the American forces are moving east. Um, you're now starting to get this vice uh, squeezing Rommel in the middle. Yeah. So when the conference starts, uh, 
you know, the point of the conference really is what's our next step going to be? Um, what do we do now? Assuming we can successfully drive the Germans out of North Africa, which will give us more control over the Mediterranean, which was vitally important because the Suez Canal was the source of much of the oil and gasoline that the, the British depended on. And there, right. there was a real fear that if the Nazis got control of the Suez Canal, it would shut off the vital supply of, of oil. Uh, well, in this kind of war, you've got modernization, mechanization, in a mechanized war, you definitely need petrol. Yep. And so one of the interesting things that happens here is that both Churchill's son, Randolph, and two of FDR's sons, um, Elliot and Franklin, are brought into this conference, uh, not knowing where they're going, given orders to fly there, and they show up, and there's their dads. Um, and believe me, they did not expect to see their fathers in North Africa. Um, I love that so much. Yeah, it's it's a it's a crazy story. And both um, of Franklin's sons, or well, all four of his sons, served in the, the war. But the two that were there um, were really an active duty uh, campaign. Um, you know, they were Elliot was flying reconnaissance mission in in converted mosquito bombers. <laughs> essentially flying unarmed over German positions uh, for reconnaissance photography. Um, and so, you know, they were not sitting at desks back in Washington. They were, they were in, in the mix. Anyway, so part of the reason Franklin wanted his sons to be around was that he needed someone he could trust to help him with the very sort of embarrassing details of his personal life, right? Right. Someone has to get him out of bed in the morning. Someone has to help him in the bathroom. Someone has to put his socks on. Someone has to put him in the wheelchair. You know, it's, and then when he stands up, someone has to be there for him to hold onto their arm because he can't stand even with the cane. Um, so it's, you know, having his sons there were vitally important. And both of them wrote later about the experience of being there. You know, we're, we suffer from FDR never keeping a journal. So you sort of are, are dependent upon the people who are around him to sort of gain insight into what his daily experience was and what he was really thinking about during these conferences. And, you know, everybody knew there was going to be some, some I think Elliot calls it fur flying at this um, military conference. Yeah, probably. <laughs> and, and once again, the British because they've been doing this for a while, were much better prepared. Mm -hmm. You know, they knew what they were going to accomplish. They had a very, very significant set of arguments and explanations and logistical planning about trying to make the next step, the invasion of Sicily and then into Italy, rather than going up around and invading um, France. Um, and the Americans were all, you know, again, sort of arrogant and thinking, no, we need to go into France. We need to take the shortest route. We need to beat Hitler. Um, and you know, when, of course the British asked those tough questions, well, how many landing craft do you have? How many men do you, are, are available? How many men are we going to take? It's going to take 16 divisions at least, plus, you know, 3000 boats, plus 5,000 airplanes, blah, blah, blah. And the Americans just had no response, uh, really to how they were going to meet the logistical needs uh, of this, uh, and, and the realization that even though Stalin was pushing for a second front in Europe, which is why. Roosevelt and the Americans wanted to help uh, Stalin out, yeah. Churchill and the British generals simply had a much more compelling argument. And that's definitely a very British thing. Everybody, every time I've worked with the British, they were definitely more prepared. 
with uh, with their questions, and they had the kind of questions where it's like they knew I didn't have the answers. Right. Well, and that was part of what was going on here. Um, and the the Americans were smart enough. I mean, General Marshall, General Eisenhower, these people they're they're not stupid people. They they understood the logistical issues, and one of the reasons that Eisenhower was put in charge um, of the North Africa. Um, invasion force and the logistics after they had landed was that they knew that he was not only very good at the politics of getting along with the British um, and managing all of these egos, you know, because all these generals had big egos, yeah. um, but also the understanding that the logistics, it does you no good to have a tank battalion, you know, two miles from the Germans if they have no artillery, if they have no combat troops, if they have no ammunition, if they don't have enough gas. Right. And of course, the Americans were humiliated at the Kasserine Pass, you know, because, you know, the Germans just slapped them around um, yeah. and drove them back and they abandoned equipment. And again, their soldiers really had not faced that kind of intense warfare before. And many of them fled. They retreated. Uh, uh, it was not an orderly retreat. So, you know, they had gotten their nose bloodied in, in North Africa and it, it did validate many of the concerns the British had had that the Americans had been resistant to, which is that you're not ready to take on frontline German troops in a fortified Europe. Exactly. And I mean, at Kasserine, these are troops that had been fighting in North Africa for a long time. And they were, I mean, these are tired men. These are not going to be new forces in, in Europe on the continent that are going to be probably more challenging. Plus when the Americans came, um, when the Americans got to North Africa, a lot of the troops that they faced initially were the Vichy French, were they not? Right. Yeah. And there was an ongoing battle with, within the French, um, you know, between de Gaulle and the Free French and the Giraud forces that were there. And some people didn't want to make friends with the French because they had been um, collaborating with the Germans. And, the, you know, it was a lot of complicated stuff going on. Yeah. Um, but the... Several things happened at the conference that are really very, very interesting and telling about this partnership. And uh, at, at this point in the war, Churchill was still really the dominant figure, um, even though the Americans were the ones who were eventually going to be providing more weapons and more troops and et cetera. You know, the British had been in it longer. They had the, the larger forces um, and they just were more prepared for what the next steps were going to be, which were going to be, this is a big decision, which way we're going. Are we going north or are we going south? I mean, it's not, a, you can't really compromise on that. Right. Um, and so the ability of Roosevelt to understand the bigger picture, to overrule his own generals and, and essentially force them to go along with the British plan. Um, and this is now the second time he's done this to them. Uh, the third time, if you include the, reallocation of the tanks and the yeah. fourth time if you include destroyers for bases deals uh and lend lease when he kept saying no send as much as we've got to england and the generals were saying but we need those for our troops they're they're training with broomsticks and he goes yeah. i don't care send them um it, but it's also the point where you're starting to see a shift in power um where by the time you get to tehran at the end of 1943 Really, the Americans are the dominant force now, and Roosevelt has taken over as essentially the overall commander in chief. But I think 
in Casablanca, it's still British. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that happens there is that uh, the, the king of Morocco and his son host a dinner for Roosevelt and Churchill and a couple of their closest aides. Um, and this is a very important, very interesting dinner because, of course, Morocco had been a French colony. Mm-hmm. And one of the big differences between Roosevelt and Churchill was that Roosevelt felt that after the war, we were fighting for the freedom of colonial countries all over the world, including British colonial countries that really should be given their independence. And of course, Churchill was fighting for the preservation of the British Empire. Yeah. Um, and in this dinner, uh, Churchill sort of is watching as Roosevelt is making a deal uh, with the king saying, after the war, we can help you. We can provide military support. We can provide financial support. We want to get our businesses here. We can help you build your businesses up. And treating him, the king of Morocco, as an equal, as you know, uh, rather than as a subject. Right. Uh, and this is something that Roosevelt does a time and time again after um, you know, the conference in, in Yalta, he meets with King Haile Selassie and King Farouk of Egypt and with Ibn Saud of Saudi Arabia, all at the same time trying to say America wants to support your progress in a post-war world. Mm-hmm. And this sort of drove Churchill crazy because here you've got Americans mucking around in what he thought was British sphere of influence. Right. And Churchill had assumed that after the war that Morocco would become a British colony rather than a French colony. So um, it was a lot of complicated politics going on. Yeah. It's it's funny. I wonder if they reached a point where Churchill would think, you know, I got to stop inviting him places. <laughs> well, yes and no. I mean, I think there was this, certainly in the early days, you know, Churchill desperately needed the United States. Without the United States, there's no question Britain would have fallen, as probably the Soviet Union would have to the German forces. The Germans were so much more um, prepared. Their military was so much more effective. Um, and if it hadn't been for Hitler's horrific military leadership, you know, they probably would have won in Russia. They almost certainly would have defeated us on D-Day, and they probably would have been able to successfully conquer Great Britain. Um, but as I said before, the, the in the early days, Roosevelt was supporting Churchill and Great Britain by sending weapons. But then after Pearl Harbor, now it's human, now it's American boys. Right. You know, now it's the full might of the American industrial complex. And very quickly, the number of ships, planes, tanks, trucks that we can build just overwhelms the battlefield. And of course, the number of men we can send is three times what the British can, can muster. Right. So the, the, that balance of power shifts, even though we're fighting a two-front war. The um, with I I know that after Pearl Harbor we were able to more or less mobilize the entire nation. It wasn't so much. It, there was no longer a question of when. It was like this is it. Now we have to. The mobilization was interesting because prior to Pearl Harbor, of course, there was a very very strong isolationist movement in the United States. There were a lot of American fascists uh, working both openly publicly supporting isolationism and covertly, you know, who were Nazi sympathizers and many of whom actually believed that fascism was the future for America, you know, and actively trying to undermine President Roosevelt's uh, administration and even working towards the installation of an American Fuhrer, uh, thinking that fascism was, 
the future. And you're talking about some very, very important, powerful people. Henry Ford, Charles Lindbergh, William Randolph Hearst, Robert McCormick, Senator Burton Wheeler, congressmen, you know, uh, bankers, politicians. It was a, these weren't radical fringe. These were key people in the mainstream. And American businesses had huge amounts of money invested in Germany, you know, particularly prior to the war. I mean, General Motors, right. Ford, Coca-Cola, you know, um, yeah. the banks, there's a lot of industrial wealth that got tied up in the Nazi regime. And so, um, you know, prior to Pearl Harbor, there was this very, very powerful movement. And then after Pearl Harbor, although everyone superficially came out and said, oh, yes, you know, all together, there was still an undercurrent of Nazi sympathizers in this country. Um, and, you know, it was a it was a real threat. Yeah, it's um, this country, even then, the United States is just too big and too, like the economy is too strong for it, us to be isolated. You know, it's just not something that's a realistic goal. Right. So I just, it's interesting the type of people that we're all for it. There's a couple of interesting, to go back to Casablanca and Operation Torch, um, one of the things that Roosevelt insisted on was he wanted to do an inspection of the of the troops. Um, and of course, the Secret Service just about had a, you know, coronary <laughs> when they found out he wanted to drive around in a Jeep. And, and, and of course, nobody knew he was there. So he right. Was, I was going to say, nobody knows yet yeah. that he's there. So that's, uh, yeah, it's still a secret. So he pulls up in his Jeep. And of course, everybody can sort of figure out what's this big parade going on here? Why all of a sudden the high security? And, he, you know, when he goes through and he salutes and he, and he has lunch, you know, with <laughs> Harry Hopkins and, and General Patton. You know, right there in the field eating, you know, field mess and you know, of a field mess because we know we have the mess kit. He brought the mess kit back with him. It's in the collection of the FDR library oh, wow. of what he ate from that day on, the, you know, and, and, and there had been a particularly uh, brutal battle that, uh, and a number of Americans had already been buried in a cemetery there. Uh, and Roosevelt insisted on visiting the cemetery and paying his respects. So this was something that, as word spread, it really endeared him to these, you know, G.I. Joes, you know, the guys who are living in tents, eating sand, you know, beginning to understand what it meant to be a soldier. And here's the president of the United States, you know, most of them didn't know he was in a wheelchair, but they could tell, you know, they knew he'd had polio waving at them from the back of a Jeep. I mean, it really is pretty incredible. Um and then at the end of the conference, this is one of my, you know, favorite stories. At the end of the conference, um, they fly in about 20, 30 uh, war reporters from all over uh, the theater, and they line them up, and out walks Churchill, Roosevelt, all of their top generals, <laughs> and they're all like, what are you guys doing here? I mean, it was a complete shock to all of them. No, no one had any idea. And they had, they're all sitting on the grass out in front of this beautiful resort in Casablanca. It's a beautiful sunny day. And, you know, they're all sort of like, what? And they have this press conference where they talk about, um, you know, what they had decided and what the conference and, and Roosevelt in his typically brilliant sort of uh, media magic way has Charles de Gaulle come out um, and uh, General uh, Dardan come out who hate each other, right? Oh, both. Giro, I'm yeah. sorry. Um, they, they, they hate each other, and they're both sort of sitting there. 
and and FDR says, no, you know, shake hands because all the press photographers are everybody's there. No, no, really shake hands. And the two of them, I mean, they really wanted to just spit in each other's faces, but they sort of awkwardly stand up and sort of put their hands out. And, and then Roosevelt goes, no, 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 do it again. <laughs> of course, you know, De Gaulle is six foot four or something, and Jerome's, but but so they and there's this famous photograph of Churchill and Roosevelt seated and the two French generals shaking hands. It doesn't really reflect the reality at all. But again, the power of the image at that moment, you know, sort of sets up the fact that that this is this new united force that's going to, you know, kick the Germans out of North Africa. Yeah. Um, and it and in his prepared remarks, you know, uh, Roosevelt says that um, that we will accept nothing less than unconditional surrender of Germany, Italy, and Japan. And now this is this is big news. I mean, it had been discussed, it hadn't been formally agreed to, and certainly the language that Roosevelt is using was stronger than Churchill would have been comfortable. Churchill really wanted to cut Italy out of that. He wanted it to be focused just on unconditional surrender from Hitler so that they had some negotiating room to maybe get Mussolini and the Italians to switch sides. Um, but it becomes really the driving strategy from that point forward. It basically says, okay, we're in it. We're not going to back out. The Russians can't create a separate piece. The British can't, you know, we are all in this together until we destroy these fascist militaries. Um, and it's a very important moment. And again, it starts to show that tip of the tipping of the balance of power, you know, from British to American as Roosevelt is making this very, you know, um, important strategic statement. It's um, I, I think that it, it's probably still typical. It was even then typical American, you know, we're just going to be, we're going to be more aggressive. We're going to get right to the point. Um, you know, it's like, look, if we're in this, we're in it to win it. You know, we're not, we're not playing games. We're not going to negotiate. Look at the trouble they're causing. The only thing we can accept is their surrender. And after right. the end of World War One, we obviously couldn't end it with another armistice because that showed that it wasn't going to be as effective. Right. And the idea was that they had to find a way of destroying any future war making capabilities within Imperial Japan and uh, the Third Reich. Yeah. And so it was a, you know, Roosevelt understood what he was doing. Um, he was also sort of trying to speak to Stalin because there was a tremendous fear that Stalin and, you know, even at this point in January of 1943, you know, the Germans still have four million men, yeah. you know, in on Soviet territory. I mean, it the war has just been brutal. Ten million Russians have died, but the Russians are starting, you know, to counterattack. The Russians are starting to push the Germans back. And so the big fear that Churchill and Roosevelt had was that, you know, once he gets them to the border of Russia, he's going to cut a deal. Um, and they and because Stalin was pretty ticked off that they hadn't opened a second front in France to help pull some of these German um, troops away from Russia to defend the Western um, Atlantic Wall. It's uh I, I love the human element of the stories, though. Like the you know the way you talk about Roosevelt with the um, with the press and with Churchill and with his sons, and those are just really um, it, 
is it's the side of this part of the history that we don't normally get. Like we don't learn this in school and you'd have to go out of your way to actually want, you'd have to want to learn it and then go out of your way to do it in order to learn something like this. Um, well, the most humanizing moment of the whole thing is at the very end, you know, Roosevelt is scheduled to, to, to go back and Churchill says, no, I want you to spend one day and come with me to Marrakesh. Uh, Cause I want you to see the sunset on the Atlas mountains. And I don't know if you've ever been to Marrakesh. I've been there. It's a magnificently beautiful old fortress city. And Roosevelt agrees. Um, and they basically sort of lined the highway from Casablanca to Marrakesh with soldiers. And they got planes flying overhead. But they go to Marrakesh and they stay at the consul's villa there. Um, and there's a sort of a tower on the third floor. And you know, a very, very narrow stairwell to get up there. And so they have to two of the aides sort of lock their fingers together and Roosevelt sits in their hands and they carry him up these stairs so he can have this view of the Atlas Mountains. And he sits there with Churchill and they watch this beautiful sunset. And it's a very powerful moment for both of them because it has taken them outside of this framework of military conference and, and put them into a environment in which their true spirits emerge. There's a very famous photograph of sort of Churchill standing in the shadows and FDR looking out uh, over the um, landscape. And of course, it's a black and white photo, so you don't get the full effect. Yeah. And then the next day, uh, when Roosevelt is leaving, uh, Churchill's at the airport with him, you know, tears in his eye. Churchill's a very emotional guy. And he turns to his aide and he says, there goes the greatest man I have ever known um, as Roosevelt flies off. And Churchill goes back to the villa and paints a painting of the scene of the sunset on the Atlas Mountains. And of course, Churchill was a very, very passionate painter, but he only painted one picture during the entire war. And this is that photo, this is that painting. And the painting um, was given to Roosevelt and then was sold by the family. But it's a it's a really beautiful painting. But again, I think it it reflects this deep emotional bond that had formed between these two men. Um, and it's, it's that bond that allowed them to overcome all of their differences over the next, you know, two and a half years as they successfully prosecuted this war on two fronts. Such a great story. Um, so one more thing, cause I know we've been going for a while. Um, on the tri the trip home took almost as long, correct? Yes, it was a long trip, like home. four days, yeah. give or take. And uh, on that trip, FDR got to celebrate his birthday. Correct. So January thirtieth was FDR's birthday. Um, and one of the interesting things about this is that you know he was very much a um, a person who believed in in finding a way to relax, to have fun. And for him, mm -hmm. in being in a wheelchair or, or unable to move, it was very much about the social environment that he could create around him. Um, famously, you know, Jan January 30th, from the time, he, even before he became president, was a date that they would use to do fundraisers, to raise money for his polio research center in Warm Springs, Georgia. They would have what they call birthday balls every year, and they would have them all across the country, and they raised millions of dollars for for polio research. So his birthday was always an event for some celebration. And on the flight home uh, on January 30th, they had a birthday cake for him uh, with Harry Hopkins and 
one of his generals and is and they're sitting there and again there's a wonderful photograph of this as they're celebrating his birthday uh, on the way home and it, it goes i think to his ability to compartmentalize you know all of the different things he's dealing with um yeah. and it, it was an amazing ability he had that even under the worst moments he was always um cordial and friendly and always very polite to the people around him uh you know, never indicated how embarrassing or awkward it was for him to be physically carried in and out of wheelchairs and you know, all of that stuff he would always just sort of keep a little light banter going and in the white house five o'clock every night they'd have children's hour where he'd make cocktails and you know um apparently he was terrible at making cocktails churchill would always throw them <laughs> in the plant and go get a straight shot of scotch but uh but it goes to this need that he had to be able to put those things away. It's like his stamp collection or his book collections or his the things that allowed him to compartmentalize all of these stressors and have a moment where he could just relax. And I think the idea of this birthday cake on the plane on the flight home goes to that, okay, that's over with now. We're just going to have this fun moment. Uh, and I, I, I love it. I think it's it. It says so much about the kind of person that he was, and I think that that's um, that's absolutely something that we we should all be able to look at and be like, you know, I want to be more like that. I want to be able to separate, even though here he is, secret travel plans, dangerous flights, four day trips, you know, just just on the planes alone, in his sixties, not not doing so great health wise, and yet, you know. In, in the middle of a war. And here he is. He takes a moment. And he, I love the picture with the birthday cake. It's just, it, it, for me, it's just, it's the most human thing to see. Yeah. And, and you know, everyone who worked with him says the same thing about him is that he had this, you know, this charisma and this warmth um, that would uh, defy the reality of the enormous pressures he was under on a daily basis. Again, when you look at uh, the, the, papers in the, what we call the map room papers, because after um, Pearl Harbor, he created a map room. And so all communication coming in and out of the White House is stored on these papers, all the secret communications. And on any given day, he'd be dealing with 10 or 12 major crises scattered all across the world, not to mention domestic political issues and labor strikes and, you know, um, his children getting divorces. You know, I mean, and it's, it's almost unimaginable the level of stress um, that he was under on a daily basis, and yet it almost never showed. Just absolutely an amazing person. So, um, so Paul, thank you so much for taking the time to share these stories and your expertise with me and with my audience. I think that it's um, this was definitely a great way to start this podcast and in the series. And I'm so glad that I I found you through your article. It was a beautiful article. Well, thank you. It's all on the FDR Library website. And although I don't work there anymore, I can highly recommend it as a great resource for teachers, for researchers, for historians. Um, a lot of material is available online, and it's a wonderful place to visit. So if you ever get up to Hyde Park, New York, about two hours north of New York City, just follow the Hudson River and you can't miss it. It's great. I'm definitely going to go the next time I'm in the New York area. Well, thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It's an absolute pleasure. And thank you all for joining me today. You can find out more about this series and the previous series on my website, 
www.motheroftanks.com. And there you will also find a page that includes links to all of my accounts and the other accounts associated with this storytelling effort. Just a reminder, the views expressed here are solely those of the speakers and do not reflect the views, opinions, or official stances of the Department of Defense, the U.S. Army, the Combined Arms Center, the Center of Military History, the Marine Corps Museum, or any other organization associated with me, my guests, or this series. Until next time, MOT out. <laughs>